Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Skylight Books. My name is Mary. I'm the events manager here. And on behalf of all of our staff, welcome. Um, we have a great event for you tonight. I just have a couple boring announcements to make before we can get to the entertaining portion of the evening. First one, if you have a cell phone, please turn it to silent or turn it off or have it so it's not ringing in the middle of the reading. That would be awesome. Um, we also have a lot of great events this month on this green events flyer, which is available at our front counter. Uh, a couple this week, we have Nancy Rommelman with her novel, The Bad Mother, on Thursday. Thursday, Amber Benson and Patrick Rothfuss on Friday with their young adult um, sci-fi fantasy books. And we will, of course, be at the Festival of Books. We're going to have a big 400-square-foot booth. We're going to have author signings, including T.C. Boyle, Patton Oswalt, Daniel Klaus, and Michael Connolly. Um, so be sure to check us out there. Tonight, however, we are here to celebrate the release of Jim Crusoe's Toward You. Uh, Jim has been here in the past, and we're absolutely delighted to have him back for another reading for the third in his trilogy of books. Uh, he's the author of the novels Erased, Girl Factory, and Iceland. His stories and poems have appeared in the Antioch Review, Bomb, the Chicago Review, Denver Quarterly, American Poetry Review, and other publications. He teaches at Santa Monica College and lives in Los Angeles. And let's give him a big, warm welcome. Jim Crusoe. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, it is kind of fun. To, this, it's such a relief to come to the end of a trilogy, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, this one I'm especially thrilled to do because um, I've finally written an entire chapter that I can memorize, which is the first one. <laughs> and it goes, testing, testing, one, two. <laughs> I'd been tinkering with the communicator when I heard a short squeal of brakes outside my house and then a dull thud, the sound of a body being struck by a speeding car. As quickly as I could, I removed the headset, shut off the current, and hurried to my front door. When I opened it, I looked around. The street was pretty much empty except for a big brown dog wobbling up the walk to where I stood. About five feet away, it suddenly sat down and stared as if it knew me but was having trouble remembering from where exactly and whether I'd been a friend or an enemy. The dog's dark eyes moved from deep, pained questioning to blank and back to me. Hey, boy. I said, but before the animal could come to any resolution one way or the other, it fell heavily onto its side, all four legs stuck out and quivering. I tried to remember if I'd seen it around the neighborhood, and if so, where, but in truth, I never paid much attention to dogs. The animal looked at me, let out a sort of exasperated sigh, as if it had done what it was supposed to do, had brought back the ball or whatever, and dropped it at my feet. And now it seemed to say, it's your turn. But my turn to do what, I couldn't understand. Then it died. 
The dog, a male, had short red-brown hair with a small patch of white on its chest and a flat, broad skull. His expression in death had changed to one of dignity and regret. I walked over and patted his stony head. Sorry, guy, I told him. You did okay. You came to the right house. It wasn't your fault. You did fine. It just didn't happen to work out. Things go that way sometimes. Believe me, I should know. Around the dog's neck was a thick leather collar with silver spikes and an oval nameplate with Bob in block letters. But there was no other identification, no license, no rabies tag, no carefully chosen heart-shaped or bone-shaped or round disc with an address to look up or a phone number to call. Nobody at all to tell the bad news. And as chance would have it, Bob was my name too. Bob's nails were dark, shiny, and in need of cutting. There was an endearing tuft of black hair at the very tip of his tail. His tongue, already grained, drained to gray in the fading light, poured carelessly out from one side of his loose, loose mouth. I could see that no visible marks on him, but clearly he'd been the victim of that speeding car wherever it had disappeared to. The sound of whose driver's belated attempt to brake had disturbed me. It seemed odd that out of all the doors on this street Bob might have staggered toward, he had chosen one that belonged to a person who shared his name, his brother in effect. But animals I knew often had a way of sensing the nearness of a kindred spirit. Or, alternately, I thought, if Bob hadn't known my name, was it possible he'd been sent as a sign? Could Bob's visit be a warning like that famous scene in The Godfather, where the horse's head is left on the movie producer's bed? <laughs> was someone or something telling me, hey, pal, it's time to wake up? Bob was alive, now he's dead. You are alive, but how long do you think that's going to last? So carpe diem, Bob, if you get my drift. <laughs> I may have been missing a couple steps in the old reasoning process here, but the point was the same. In other words, there was a possibility, however remote, that some godlike force had chosen this unfortunate dog to send me a message, and that message was, get off your ass, Bob. It's time to stop your wool gathering and make something of your life. You've been working on the communicator in a more or less half-assed fashion ever since Yvonne disappeared, and how far have you gotten? Not very is how far. You've been putting on those headphones and taking them off for how long? Since Yvonne's been gone, that's how long. Don't let me lose more faith in you than I have already, but also don't spend so much time in your invention that you forget you have an upholstery business to maintain. <laughs> I could tell you dozens of stories of people who starved to death before they finally found what they were looking for. Still, as it did for this unfortunate animal, the messenger of this message, time is running out for you too. That ship or train or bus supposed to take you out of here to a better future is at the station and about to move on without you unless you get on board. As messages went, I thought it could have been a little more focused. <laughs> the messenger of this message? And wool gathering? Where did that come from? I never used that word in my whole life. Why was I using it now? 
I took a few steps down the walk toward the street and turned to look at my house. It was a modest frame structure with a mostly brown front yard and some kind of bush on the right side of the door. <laughs> True, the door could have used another coat of varnish and the bush's leaves were starting to curl, but we were in a water shortage. That wasn't the whole story, however. The fact was that I had neglected to do the watering as well. Another strike against me. The dog's message might have added in a sort of P.S. To make matters worse, my gutters were stuffed with leaves. My next door neighbor, Farley, had a tree whose branches hung over my house, and though I'd asked him a million times to cut it back, he refused. One of these days, I was going to have to get a ladder to clean those gutters out. I hated heights. I knew I should call the city and report Bob's death, but the truth was the dog's timing was terrible. It was 5.30 on a Thursday, and the city offices were already closed for the day. As a cost-cutting move, they were closed on Fridays, so no one would be answering phones again until the following Monday, no, Tuesday, because Monday was Columbus Day. <laughs> in other words, when, about five days in the future, I finally got through to the city switchboard and sat on hold for about ten minutes listening to an idiotically cheerful trumpet solo that some well-meaning civil servant must believe represents the sound of a happy citizenry, was collected connected to a clerk and had to explain how the previous week an animal had died on my doorstep. <laughs> how long would it be from then before someone actually appeared to take said animal away? Over a month ago, I called to ask them to take away a metal bookshelf that had been tossed near the curb in front of my house, and large parts of it still remained, making a clanking sound every time a car ran over one of them. So I figured that from where I was right now, time-wise, to the actual moment a board maintenance worker arrived at my small house to carry Bob away, I'd have a dead dog lying across my threshold for a minimum of five days, with a week far more possible, maybe two. Also, there would be the smell. It didn't seem right somehow. Bob had done his job. Bob had made his painful way all that distance up my walk nearly to my front door, and had, like the inventor of the marathon, Philippides, used his last precious moments of life to deliver his message. That and maybe to beg for a little first aid. And I had gotten the message more or less, but pitifully I'd been unable to offer any assistance in the area of veterinary expertise. Surely, Bob deserved more than being thrown into a landfill, or worse. When I considered it, I only had two real options. The first was to drag Bob next door into Farley's yard and let Farley deal with him. <laughs> the downside of that was if Farley happened to be around at this hour and he saw me, Farley worked nights, and his schedule seemed to change often, so I could never be exactly sure when he was home. I would be in big trouble. Farley had a nasty sense of boundary entitlement, and once, when a letter addressed to me had been delivered to his house by mistake, he wouldn't hand it over until I signed for it. <laughs> it turned out to be an overdue notice from the library. Or I could just drag Bob back out to the street and leave him, but the negative in that case was that if anyone saw me doing it, and there was a lot of potential to be seen because half my neighborhood come to think of it was out of work, I might be accused of murder or at least littering. 
Plus, lying in the road, Bob could cause an accident. The last thing I wanted to do was hurt an innocent mom driving her kid to preschool and then be sued by her hotshot lawyer. I walked back to where Bob was lying and thought it over. Why not be active for a change? What was it Bob had said about wool gathering? <laughs> when all was said and done, it would be a simple enough thing to drag Bob around back and bury him beneath the rose bush that was currently looking in serious need of nutrition. All in all, I guessed it wouldn't take more than a half hour. And in addition, it would give the brave dog a sort of resting place in honor of his sacrifice. And for another, it would feed the bush. The more I pondered, the better the idea seemed. I looked down at the inert form lying at my feet. You were wondering if I was friend or foe, Bob, I told the ex-man's best friend. But you could relax now. You made the right choice. You did the right thing. You're safe now. No one's ever going to scold you again for jumping up on the furniture, for tracking mud onto the carpet, or for stealing an unguarded pork roast from a dining room table while your underachiever owner is a room away in his lazy boy recliner. A real pain to reupholster, by the way. You're a good dog, Bob. And notice that while only a few minutes ago you were accusing me of indecisive, look at me now. I'm taking action on your behalf, my friend, and that's only the beginning. Grabbing Bob by his hind legs, I pulled him around the side of my house through the gate to the backyard and left him about four feet away from the rose bush. He looked as if he were sleeping, though his original look of regret had now turned to one of resentment. I went to the garage and found the fancy spade I'd bought from a mail-order gardening catalog, but had put off using because it looked so beautiful. I took it down and started to dig. My backyard was small, so at first the hole seemed disproportionately large, but once I'd slid Bob inside, the hole suddenly looked too small and too shallow. I could have pulled him out and dug it deeper, but decided not to. Rest in peace, old buddy, I whispered. There might be a little smell, but eventually the odor would disappear. It wouldn't be the worst smell in the neighborhood either, that honor probably going to Farley's taxidermy shed. <laughs> in time, Bob would become the rose bush, and the rose bush would become Bob, or something like that. It was a nice thought, I thought. <laughs> I filled the hole and tamped it down, then I watered the rose bush for several minutes. The backyard looked worse in its way than the front, but at least back there, people weren't leaving me notes to pick up my trash or cut my grass. In the darkening air, I could barely make out a hawthorn in the far corner of the yard that was in the process of shriveling to a brillo pad. The lemon tree, I noticed, was covered with cobwebs, which meant the white flies were back. I shut off the water and hung the spade back up in the garage where I found a piece of wood, a sawed-off end of a 1x12 I used to make a shelf a while ago. Then I unearthed the brush and some paint. In kind of old English lettering, I wrote Bob, and beneath it I added the date and the letters R.I.P. <laughs> I carried the finished sign over to the rose bush and hammered it into the ground about a foot away from where Bob's head ought to be. All in all, it looked pretty professional. <laughs> that night I dreamed I was walking up and down the streets of St. Nils, some of which I recognized and some of which I didn't, when I found myself in an unfamiliar alley, staring at a large building that appeared to be a warehouse, strangely out of place amid all the nearby homes. 
how the warehouse had come to be among all these residential structures and why such an anomalous eyesore was tolerated, I had no way of knowing. The building was about 30 feet high and the side I faced was about 60 feet long. There were two windows on top and two on the bottom, each around 12 by 6 feet, and no entrance was visible. Flat iron bars covered the lower set of the windows, dividing them into checkerboards. The upper row of windows had no bars at all and only closed gray shutters with flaking paint. Peculiarly, between the building's top story and the lower one, someone had painted a squiggly horizontal line with everything below the line a light blue, while the top section, except for the shutters, was completely white. This contrast, along with the fact that the line was vaguely wave-like, gave the place the feeling of an ocean on its lower part and a cloud-filled sky on its upper one. Except for the oversized copper gutters along its flat roof, there was little else in the way of decoration, nor was there any company name or logo printed anywhere to signal who owned it. I couldn't be sure if the building was still occupied or had been abandoned and was only waiting to be torn down, or possibly rehabbed into low-priced artist lofts. Artists, I remember thinking in my dream, will live about anywhere. I knew, of course, that if I walked around to another side of the building, I might find some clue to tell me more, but as it was a dream, it was impossible to move from where I was rooted. Why had I come there in the first place, or alternatively, was there some message I was supposed to deliver to whoever was inside, and if so, where would I find the front door? Then I woke, I got out of bed, and walked into my living room where I looked out the front window. Across the street, a light went on. A man wearing pajamas and a robe appeared at his window and looked back at me. Had his dreams been strange too? Was he lonely? Did he want to step into the street to have a late night chat? Thus I wondered, and then I wondered if he was wondering the same things. After a few minutes, his light went out and his window went dark again. A street or so away, a car backfired. It was well after midnight, so I washed my hands, brushed my teeth again, and this time finally stayed asleep. That's the first chapter. <laughs> Maybe, do you want me to read just a little bit more? No? Is that, you know, that's a stupid question. I guess you have to say that. No! <laughs> Let us go! Um, I wanted to do it just because I want to see if I can do this voice. Things happen in this after, after this. Um, some of them are very bad. Um, and at one point... Ah, um, so then Bob gets a threatening letter, okay? And the threatening letter is as follows. Dear Bob, maybe you wonder how I know your name, or maybe on the other hand, it just might be the most natural thing in the world that a person who is slash was bent on avenging the death of his beloved pet would take the time through a little elementary sleuthing to discover the name of his, that his dog's killer happens, happened. Grammar's not my strong point. <laughs> to be the same name as the dog I, he, loved so much, possibly even too much, some say, slash, said, <laughs> including my, his, court-appointed psychologist, Mandy. <laughs> but enough about me. 
What about you, Bob? What do you have to say for yourself? Anything? <laughs> for you should know that Bob, as I had named my dog, was far more than just an animal to me, but instead merely an extension of myself, the very embodiment, as Mandy says, of my subconscious desires and undefined personality. In other words, Bob, Bob was my inner child. <laughs> And surely for a person to be in touch with his inner child is commendable, you might say. Well, if you think I'm going to fall for that one, forget it. All you need to know is though Bob was, is the embodiment of what I said before, he was also a real canine individual, one with a vibrant personality of his own. Bob was a dog, yes, but one with his own hopes and dreams, which I would watch him act out as he slept, running and getting nowhere because Bob liked to sleep on his left side, all the time letting out these little yips or yelps, I guess you'd call them if you heard them, but you didn't, I did. <laughs> Thus many were the hours I would sit on my chair in my kitchen and watch Bob as he lay there on the floor in front of the refrigerator dreaming and I would think, is Bob yelping out of pain or pleasure? And now I'll never know simply because Bob, through a selfish act of your own, you have managed to take the very name of Bob and by virtue of the fact it happens to be the same as your own Bob, have turned every pleasant association that repeating his name beneath my breath used to bring me and might have continued to bring me in the future had you not mixed into the mortar of his death, your own formerly sweet to me, now odious name, Bob. <laughs> I hope you are following this jerk off. <laughs> so now whenever I try to assuage my grief by remembering, for example, how much Bob liked to come along on my walks to the liquor store, the pharmacy, and the medical marijuana express, <laughs> where I was working off a gift certificate from my mom, <laughs> or how Bob would chase cats, stopping to lift his leg pra at practically any, every tree. All I can see is you, Bob's murderer, peeking out from behind one of those same trees, smirking at the awful deed you are slash were about to perform. Forgive me for what may be a confusing time element here. As a matter of fact, Mandy says, that this continuing confusion between past and present tense is at the root of all my problems. <laughs> I'm trying to work it out, believe me. Likewise, Bob, when I think of how that other Bob would lift a paw or sit or stay, obedience school isn't cheap, Bob, I would tell him, good Bob. And now that very memory has been altered, so instead of praising my dog, I am forced to praise his murderer, you. And how do you think that makes me feel, Bob? I think you are getting the picture. Mandy tells me it would be good if I abandoned this line of thinking, but I obviously disagree. Because for me, Bob, you, for me, Bob, you, not him, Bob, him, not you, who was, is a part of me, though I don't know whether the good part or the bad part, I don't. Needless to say, Mandy has her own opinion on this matter, which she's only too happy to share, though as far as I'm concerned, Bob, it's not important. What is important is that at the same time you murdered Bob, Bob, you therefore killed a part of me, and conversely, because a part of Bob is still in me, Bob, the fact that I am still alive means that a part of Bob's alive as well. Also, to exact revenge for his untimely death. That is, if Bob wishes it so. Dig it as they say. 
And therefore, let me close, Bob, with a final question, which is this. I assume that you, yes, you, Bob, are familiar with the great Russian novelist Fedor Dostoevsky, the author of Crime and Punishment, although I admit I have not actually gotten around to reading it myself at this juncture. <laughs> In any case, it's my point here that these two words of his arguably most famous work go together like a horse and carriage, Bob, crime being the horse and punishment the carriage that follows. The implication being that any individual, no matter high how highborn or lowly who has had created a dastardly, a dastardly crime cannot go unpunished. Also, that's what Macbeth was about, if I remember correctly from high school or at least from those few days I actually went to English class. Though since then I have come to be a great admirer of the literary arts. And speaking of literature and the past as I am, allow me to include in this letter yet one more concept from the olden days, and that is the concept of the medieval wheel of fortune. Not the game show of the same name, Bob, but the whole concept, which goes, went as follows. Even though one day, today for example, you may be at the top of your personal carriage wheel, as far away from the mud and stones and filth of the roadbed as it's possible to get. In just a little while, that wheel will turn again as your carriage, Bob, rolls forward, and you'll be back at the bottom. And then if your carriage happens to park in that position, that's where you could be stuck for a really long time. Truthfully, I'm not sure where this is going, but if you're in interested, Mandy has called this letter, which I ran by her in draft form before I send, sent it, a cry for help. <laughs> and in fact, she told me to stow it, although if you think she's about to run off and squeal to the cops, I might remind you that of the professional oath that she and other such therapists must take regarding the privacy of all such patient-doctor communication. I hope you are understanding me. I really do. That's it. <laughs> Thank you. If you have any questions, um, my dog stole the pork roast once. <laughs> so I was, I don't have a lazy boy, but he did take that roast. Um, anything? No? Yes? No. Oh. What are you reading right now? That's an interesting question. Uh, right now, um, I'm reading a book that I had of, of a writer I've never heard of. Um, actually, one of my goals was to check out the store here and see if they had them. Do any of you know Jesse Browner? Um, I kind of came around to him in a, in a, in a way, roundabout way. Um, somebody said, oh, he's married to somebody, and he writes weird stuff. And, um, and so I'm reading a book called Conglomeros. And it's really interesting. It's um, it's about a, it starts out with a guy going into a French museum and he sees a statue with, um, instead of ears, he has hands coming out of the statue. And the statue is made of two, the body is made of two women's bodies who are facing each other. And in between them is a guy who is sandwiched together. Um, and 
he thinks it's a strange statue and he thinks it's interesting. And then he um, happens to remember, happens to read some letters of his Romanian grandfather who describes seeing in Romania alive a creature that looks sort of like this. So he goes in this, on this kind of sweet, serious, and wacky trip, uh, disguised as a big game hunter. <laughs> I know, I'm reading it. It's, it's, it's wonderful. And, and, and I'm just about, I don't know, like a quarter of the way through. But it holds up. I mean, it's really interesting. If any of you, uh, it has a kind of tone to it. Like, remember the uh, narrative Arthur Gordon Pym, that sort of great Poe novel, the Poe novel, uh, where he goes to the Antarctic, I think it is. Um, and, and it's this combination of a psychological trek and, and a real one. Anyway, um, it's got a funny feeling to it. So I'm, it really has been cheering me up recently. Thanks, thank you for letting me talk about it. Um, and I don't know anything else he's written. I'm going to finish this book you know, and see what's up and then maybe order some more online. But uh, I, I had never, it's unusual because I'd never heard anything of this guy and it's really interesting. He's contemporary. So. Do you remember what you were reading when you were writing toward you? Gosh, all sorts of things. Um, the um, Mickey in the Night Kitchen. <laughs> There's a whole chapter that's sort of an homage to Mickey in the, Mickey in the Night Kitchen. Um, there's an, uh, I read um the Iliad, and, and believe it or not, there's an, uh, there's an homage to the shield of Achilles <laughs> in this book. Um, I don't know, because, I mean, you know, these books, it, it, they take about six years to work through. I mean, it takes, a book takes about six years. Um, and the way I do it is I overlap them, so it seems as if they're like, oh, another book, another book. But it isn't, you know. Um, so I was reading a whole lot of stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it's so, it, and then they go through so many drafts and you know, that things change and things are put in and taken out. It becomes very odd. Yeah. Yes, Julie. Um, two, two questions. I, I, know, I remember in class you would talk to us a lot about fooling with tense and changing tense and sometimes you'd be tortured over what tense to write and you read pieces of, or, you know, the, you know, I did this in the past in first person, and sometimes you can be more personal. If do you think that tortured crazy man who read the that last say moi? Tense, thank you. Yeah, well, I, I couldn't figure out. You know, I mean, like, sort of like what? I mean, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, it, it's that kind of a question. Like, I don't know what tense. I mean, I I couldn't figure it out, so I just thought I'd use them both. But he doesn't know in a crazy way, and you don't know in a like, crazy way. Right. Yeah, in the same way. <laughs> and then my second question is, I never thought about the name of the city in, in the two earlier books, but St. Nils, that's... That's it. St. Nothing? Yeah. St. Existential? Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. And as I told people, um, I actually, I wrote this in a little blog for the store, but this is the last, I think it's the last St. Nils novel. I mean, St. Nils, I think, is put away. And the reason that I mention it is because, at, starting as a poet, I could never write anything because it always seemed like I couldn't be responsible to reality. I mean, I couldn't, I cannot imagine setting a story in New York or Los Angeles. I just simply can't. Uh, I, I, I wish I could, but I can't. 
So the, my clever solution was to create like a, a made-up place that I can just do anything with. And that's sort of how it came to be. And it, it was modeled um, actually for a while. It, and it, at the beginning, it was modeled on Ocean Park, at Ocean Park, where I lived for a long time. Yeah, that's that stuff. But yeah, and I had an uncle who was an upholsterer. <laughs> and, and yes, Donna. I have two questions, one sort of general and one's more specific. And I'm interested in you to hear you talk about the connections among the three novels. Um, and the specific question is, is the Hanson Garden implement in chapter one perhaps manufactured by Tens? It is. Yeah, it was. It was manufactured by the guy in the previous novel. Uh, there's not. There. There's this, just the slightest threads running between them, and uh, the hair of one of my characters in this novel just happens to resemble the hair of a rat, in in the very first of those novels, Girl Factory. So that there's just really, really tenuous connections and and yeah that's I kind of like it I mean I kind of like to imagine um, this invented town full of really misguided guys wandering around the whole town all the time <laughs> so um, so it makes me happy yeah exactly and they not nobody's aware of anybody obviously but yeah it's fun Amy how are you My novels are, are like poetry in the sense that poetry jumps. And and the novels I in each chapter I hope take usually take a jump. You know, and, and it's not real life, clearly. Um, I think what I like about prose, I mean I like poetry, I still write it once in a while, not very well, but I write it. Um, but what I like about prose is that in some ways it lets me dig deeper in, in, an, in an aimless way with, some, with, an, with a thought or a feeling as opposed to a poem because a poem seems to be, has to be efficient in, some, in my head it did, I don't know if it's true, but it seems a poem is much more purposeful. And and when I, I have a I can you know dig around in an aimless way and and my characters are all extremely aimless people. Uh, this is they can just like stew like forever and not get anywhere, uh, which is what I like about novels in some ways. That's part of it, but. I mean, I, I got I get into more trouble when I write fiction, which I you love that. I do love that because I'm honestly um, I think honestly I'm over controlling in some ways. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> oh shame, <laughs> public. But so my whole goal, I mean, is to like 
make as many, punch as many holes into the drywall as I possibly can. Because if I just have one piece, it's, it's going to be too tight. Uh, so I, I like making a huge mess and then seeing what I can do with it. And fiction is, for me, easier to do with a mess. A huger mess. And the other thing that's fun is I get to do some poetry things. I mean, I have, in this one, I have someone writing atrocious haiku. <laughs> uh, I get to do kind of yeah and i get to do lists you know uh, those those kinds of things so so it's yeah i'm not re i mean i don't i think i'd be voted out of the novelist society in a second <laughs> we know you <laughs> yeah anything else yes oh good relationship with these main characters of yours that are ultimately they never get it in a way and that to me seems so uh, brave to create those characters because we always so desperately want our main characters to get it or to have some you know moment of realization at the end but guys don't seem to. <laughs> in that way, they are better than me, Monona. I mean, I mean, seriously, in, it, it is my, um, in my best moments, I don't get it. In my worst moments, I think I got it. <laughs> and, and so that these people are sort of blessedly free of the pretension that I carry in, in my, you know, life. And they're great that way. I mean, they just, they, what I like about them is they're total bunglers. Um, and they're, but they're well-intentioned. They're, they're not, my characters, I'm so, because they could have turned out that way. They're not mean, and I really like that. Um, even Dennis, who's, who wrote the letter, um, the guy who wrote the letter, turns out to be kind of a, a sweetheart, although he is responsible for various fires and things like that. <laughs> but he's a sweetie, you know. <laughs> And, and, and actually, my editors kept saying, you have to make them scarier. You have to make them scarier. <laughs> I go, oh, okay, I make them scarier. <laughs> yes? Okay, so one more question. Also, I, I think that anyone who gets dogs that way has to have a lot of wisdom and depth. I mean, those characters, you can't understand a dog and be stupid, but that way. <laughs> but um, what's it... What's it like, or do you think about it anymore at this point as a writer to like write pages and then they come out of the printer and then you're holding them and you're editing it and whatever and then it's not published and then it is published and now it's a book, an actual book. You know, when you were leafing through it to find that second section you wanted to write, I was thinking about a read. I was thinking, what is that like? At this point, is it anything? Is no. it just having a little child and you don't think about that you have a baby anymore? Yeah, <laughs> it's just nothing. I mean, you just, yeah. I, you know, you spend so many times shuffling it, so many times with drafts. It's like, oh yeah. I mean, I, I don't, you know, people say, Wow, it's really pretty now that it's grown up like a kid. <laughs> people always say, you must be excited. I just go, what? <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I don't, I, you know, I don't get excited. I mean, I'm happy and pleased that it's done. I feel like, in a way, uh, it landed where it was supposed to land. You know, after like one of those kinds of flights. When you see the three of them on a shelf, you don't think of, you know? Well, they're not, actually they're not on a shelf. <laughs> oh, there they are. Oh, yeah. But no, I don't. I think that the covers are really nice. I'm so happy. One of the things that's great about Tin House is they let me pick my covers. And um, 
and that's just very nice. I mean, I don't know if they're great or not, but but it, they're covers that I like. Uh, and so, what the heck? So, yes, Bob. Talk about the six-year process that these books take, and certainly creating mess. How do you know when it's not a mess anymore? How do you know when it's finished? I don't. I mean, other people. I, I think it's finished, and then other people tell me, "Wait, it's still a mess." That's what my editors do. You know, I say, oh, you know, I, what's so great is, um, I, you know, every time I finish it, my book, I, I finish a draft, I go, this is it. This is so perfect. I finally got it. <laughs> and then, and that's why I take six years, because then I put it aside for like four, year, four months or five months, and then I can pick it up again and go, what did I think? What was I thinking? But the second I finish it, I think it's done. I think it just couldn't be better. And then I go through, you know, and I go through again and again and again. Um, when I was in junior high, I think junior high, I used to, they used to, the local hobby shop, this is, I guess, this is the, the old days, folks. They used to have model airplane contests for kids to build model airplanes. And um, they would give you a prize and I would build, you know, you would, everyone would build a model airplane. And I, they were plastic in those days. I didn't aspire to wood. Um, anyway, I, I would build these planes and I was so proud of them and then uh, then they would put them in the window of the shop and I would suddenly see the fingerprints the glue prints all over them you know and see how everything was crooked and it's like oh another honorable mention <laughs> and that's what uh, that's what writing that business is it's just it takes a long time for me to come around to um, what it is I'm doing and I, I wish I could do it fast but I just no, I mean, I, I don't, you know that I, I um, that this, this is corny, but I do believe it, that Rethke poem, I wake to sleep and take my waking slow, I learn by going where I have to go. That just seems to me to be the writing process for me. Do you, do you read from a published book and think, gee, I wish I once in a while. Yeah, once in a while I go, should have fixed that. Yeah, once in a while. Anything else we're through? Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.